today on Ag News Daily. We've been exploring robotics and agriculture and, and really have come to the conclusion that the path forward in terms of making robots a reality begins with what we call collaborative robots. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, it's Mike Pearson here coming to you on this Tuesday, the 6th of November. I am flying solo today. Delaney is up at a video shoot taking some pictures of some piggies. I believe up in Iowa Falls, home to a heck of a lot of hogs here in Iowa. Well, thanks for tuning in this week. I want to welcome some new listeners. I had a reporter. I didn't have it, but there was an article out there on PBS NewsHour this week talking about mental health in rural America. And the author, Courtney Venepole, did an interview with me, which I was really flattered by, talking about... Uh, my experiences being on Twitter as somebody in rural America who's dealt with some mental health concerns, namely anxiety and depression and bleh, the usual stuff. But anyway, that came out this weekend. So if you're tuning in because of that, we want to welcome you. Ordinarily, there is another voice beside mine. There's Delaney Howell, who we will hear from a little bit later on during our hashtag Tech Tuesday interview. So today I just want to bring y'all some news before we get into that. And as I mentioned, Delaney is up filming hogs. And of course, a lot of us here in the heartland know hogs are fantastic consumers of both soybean meal and corn. However, we are running into some concerns, concerns we don't typically see in Iowa and Nebraska with this year's corn harvest, and that is vomitoxin. We've got a report out from Reuters. They talked to a lot of folks with Smithfield and the Andersons, mentioning that they have seen higher levels than expected of vomitoxin this year in the corn crop. Now, that probably isn't a huge surprise for a lot of our listeners. We've been dealing with a lot of wet weather this harvest season. Some of that wetness came while it was still plenty warm. We had seeds germinating in the field, of course, wet and warmish conditions are perfect for fungal growth, which is what vomitoxin is. And what we've seen, or exactly what uh, Reuters reported, was that uh, both the Andersons and Smithfield are seeing increased levels of vomitoxin. Now, they're seeing it in a lot of places you'd expect, of course, down in the southeast, particularly after the, the hurricanes. Both Florence and Michael contributed a lot to some vomitoxin concerns down there, but also out of Iowa and Nebraska as well as in Michigan and Ohio. Ethanol plants, have uh, they've been testing corn deliveries for vomitoxin, and if the corn contains too much, you could be hit with an extra fee at delivery, or, as Anderson's warned, if you're delivering to an ethanol plant in Albion, Michigan, listeners up there, if you're delivering to Albion, if you've got more than five parts per million of vomitoxin in the corn, they might just straight up reject the load. So do be taking that into consideration. Apparently, we're also hearing some concerns about this arising in Ontario. And uh, of the 45 samples that Alltech has tested, 80% have contained vomitoxin, which is just about average. But uh, they're saying because of the delayed harvest, even though we're seeing average reports so far, that could rise as more harvest gets completed, particularly as these wet bushels come out of the fields after the most recent rainfalls. Now, while we're talking rain, while we're talking harvest, we've, of course, got to talk about the harvest progress that was reported yesterday afternoon. And USDA saw that farmers, American growers, saw another double-digit gain in harvest progress. Last week, 
uh, excuse me, as of Sunday on the 4th, 83% of soybeans were harvested, so we got another 11% out of the field. We're still running a little behind, which is expected given, as I mentioned, the wetness. We're six percentage points behind the five-year average. However, it does seem like it is picking up, at least particularly in the northern Corn Belt. Kansas is still very slow. Their five-year average is 82%, and they're currently at 63%. Arkansas has 72% harvested, and they're usually a lot farther along by this point. Corn harvest finished last week at 76% complete. That's up 13 points from the previous week. Pretty much right on pace. Ordinarily, according to the five-year average, we'd be at 77% harvested. This year, we're standing at 76. So American corn growers, when they kick those combines on, man, they can really rock and roll. Now, we've got some other news. Want to be sure to take us over here to the financial markets, a market we haven't talked about very much. It was uh, kind of a flash in the pan, and that's Bitcoin. Bitcoin has experienced one of its worst annual price performances in its 10-year lifespan. So that's not great news. Of course, we uh, we did a lot of reporting on Bitcoin and the blockchain when it all kind of took off last summer, summer of 2017. And it's just kind of been ho-hum since then. The good news is it does appear to be finding a price. Volatility has really begun to drop off. In fact, it's at its lowest level in nearly two years. And... Uh, the price swings are falling even smaller. So basically, traders, I suppose, buyers and sellers of Bitcoin are kind of starting to coalesce around what a fair, and I'm using air quotes here, price for Bitcoin might be in this environment. Now, as the stock market continues to fluctuate, as we see interest rates move, as we see the price of gold switch around, all these things are going to be influencing that price. But it does seem as though a lot of those hardcore speculators that really ran the price up have uh, have taken a step back. They're breathing a little bit more deeply, and they're, uh, they're kind of looking into this in a little bit more detail. Got some news here. Came out a little bit earlier this week, and that is U.S. economic activity, the economy, added 250,000 jobs in October. That is bigly above estimates, as some in the White House might report. Uh, the labor market has maintained its momentum, of course, that might have an impact on today's election. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, there's a vote today. I don't know if you've gotten text messages or tweets or perhaps other programs you're listening to have mentioned it. I'm going to steer clear of the election today. I got nothing to add to it that you can't pick up on any of the major cable news stations. But uh, if you can get out and vote, um, the assumption is that if we've got a strong economy, more people support the incumbent party's president, uh, the incumbent president's party. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, could redound to the Republicans' benefit. But, you know, what do I know? We'll have to wait and see. Wages were also up after we added 250,000 jobs. Now, ordinarily, this time of year, we do start to see employment tick up as a lot of folks add seasonal positions to prepare for the holidays, both to put a little extra money in their pocket and because stores just need a little bit extra help. I wonder, though, as we look ahead, 2020, 2025, you know, we've heard a lot of conversations over the past two or three or maybe five years about the, quote, death of retail as more people are buying stuff online. I wonder if we're still going to have that uptick in employment. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, stay tuned. Well, let's see. As we take a look over across the sea, across the Pacific Ocean, in fact, 
turning our topic to China yet again, as we typically do on this podcast, given the trade war that continues to be ongoing. We've got some insight on Chinese steel production. Now, we all think back to the very, very beginning, way back at our dusty mines to the start of 2017. Chinese steel was the purported initiator of the trade war. Uh, we wanted to curb Chinese steel imports, so we put tariffs on, plus a bunch of our allies. Well, Chinese steel output is expected to climb over 900 million tons in 218. That would make it the highest production year on record. And this comes from Chen Durong. He is the chairman of Bao Steel. And uh, he's speaking today, as we talked about yesterday, at the China International Import Expo in Shanghai. Now, China produces a ton of steel, but of course they also consume a ton of steel. And so the vast, vast, vast majority of this Chinese steel is going to be consumed in country. However, some of it might make its way into the export channels. Probably not a lot of it will be making its way all the way to the United States. Now, we do have a very, very interesting Tech Tuesday episode, but I want to just take a look, see if there are any other news stories that were really leaping out at me that I wanted to be sure I covered. Let me jump around here for just a sec. And I do have just one other story. This is coming from the United States. I shared earlier, for a lot of you listeners who are long-time listeners, you remember me talking, oh gosh, probably about a month, six weeks ago, about the potential that 2019 could see crude prices rally. We've curbed Iranian exports, therefore a lot more crude is going to be demanded from the other producers that could drive prices higher. Well, then just a few weeks later, we heard from a lot of oil analysts who were saying, well... Prices have gotten high enough that a lot of American frackers are getting back into the business. They're either drilling new wells or increasing production on their existing wells. And rather than seeing prices spike in 2019, the high might be in and we could see prices turn back down as America really kicks it in the behind and starts cranking oil out of the ground. Well... The EIA has announced that U.S. crude output is expected to pass 12 million gallons per day in 2019. Uh, Right now, we've got um, just, just a little north of 10 million gallons per day. They expect us to begin pumping an additional 1.16 million barrels, excuse me, barrels, it's a 55 gallon drum, barrels of oil per day from this year. Now, that's a rise of, uh, well, it's about, what is that, 100 million barrels more per day than EIA had estimated before. They they think this is because of that shale revolution that continues to progress in the Permian Basin down in Texas, the Bakken in North Dakota, Pennsylvania, and all these other places. And uh, maybe if you locked in fuel prices on my earlier advice, I probably owe you an apology because we have seen crude oil take a turn to the downside. Well, speaking of prices moving and flopping around, flopping is perhaps the best uh, adjective for the grain markets today. Let's jump into that, see where the grain markets finished. Remember, listeners, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. You can get in touch with any of their talented market analysts. Of course, we have Mr. Ted Seifert on the program quite a bit. We've talked to Brian Grossman. We like to bring their expertise to you over the podcast, but you can get it in the palm of your hand on your phone by calling 312-277-0050, or you can visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. 
Well, the corn market flopped about a bit today, finished slightly lower on the day. Starting with the December contract, we were down three quarters of a cent at 373 and a quarter. The March down a half at 385 and a quarter. In soybeans, the November contract was off a penny at 872 even. The January down one and a half, finished at 884 and a quarter. Chicago wheat was the only one that didn't do too much flopping. It was strongly higher today. The December contract up four and a half, excuse me, four and three quarter cents at 512 even. The March up four and a quarter to close at 527 and a quarter. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we've got mixed trade here in the live cattle complex. December live cattle closed higher by 10 cents at 115.4250. The February down a quarter at 120.40. In feeder cattle, a little bit of a rebound after yesterday's sell-off. The November contract up 47.5 cents at 149.9750. The January up 17.5 to finish at 146.60. And weakness in lean hogs. The December contract limit down, dropped $3 today to close at 54.10. The February down 272.5 to finish the day at 61. 40. And we'll take a quick look at the dairy market. Looking at Class 3 milk, November contract dropped 19 cents on the day at 14.51. The December was down 23 cents to close at 14.82. Without further ado, let's kick it over to Delaney Howell for this week's Hashtag Tech Tuesday. Well, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, I'm catching up with Charlie Anderson, who is the CEO of Augie and Robotics. Charlie, tell me a little bit about about this company. I mean, it's a, it sounds like it's a fairly new startup company and you guys had some recent big announcements, which we'll get to here later on, but tell me a little bit more about your company. Yeah. So we are a, um, it's a new company founded in 2017. Um, and, uh, uh, primarily a team of engineers, although my background is kind of coming from the, the farming and ag machinery space. Um, and for the past year or so, uh, we've been exploring robotics and agriculture and, and really have come to the conclusion that uh, the, the path forward in terms of making robots a reality begins with what we call collaborative robots. So um, instead of trying to build a robot that will pick a berry or prune a fruit tree, um, we are instead trying to build a robotic platform that works alongside people, helps them work more productively, and later can do quite a bit more as well. Um, and so today uh, we've, we've developed that platform. We call it Burrow, um, which is a kind of a Spanish term for a donkey. And it is a robotic platform that can carry about a quarter of a ton, so about 500 pounds, um, is able to follow people using deep learning and computer vision. And as it follows you or, or anybody, it's able to learn a path and then rerun it autonomously. So it can basically convey material back and forth. Um, and as an early stage startup for us, the, you know, the most important thing is finding an initial customer base. And we found just that in some large growers of handpicked fruit. So think guys like Driscoll's, um, you know, and people in crops like blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, table grapes, those types of things. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's who we are and, and what we're up to today. Oh, that is super neat. So walk me through a little bit more how the burrow system works. Do you, do If I want it to follow me, do I have to punch something into an iPad or my smartphone, or does it automatically just sense where I'm at? How does that work? Yeah, so um, and we do get this question quite a bit. Uh, so uh, since the 1970s or so, people have had, uh, you know, carts that can follow you around using a key fob or something like that. Um, and in our case, we have nothing like that. Uh, instead, we're using uh, a bunch of cameras. Uh, and so 
you approach the machine, you push a follow button, and you can be anybody. You don't have to carry any any remote or beacon for it to work. And so it then, um, once you put the, push that follow button, it can follow you. Um, you can also push, we have a proceed button, so you can actually walk towards it and have it move away from you. Um, and then uh, as you have it following you, you can teach it, you can, you can have it learn the path you followed precisely, and it's then able to retrace that path on its own. So if you were um, out in a berry field and you wanted to go, uh, you know, have, um, if you wanted to allow 15 or 20 people picking blueberries, use one burrow, you would walk the burrow up and down a, a um, you know, up and down a row beginning and ending at the same point. And then it just reruns that loop path all day long. Whenever it passes by somebody picking, uh, they can set what they picked into it. And it just keeps carrying, mm. uh, carrying uh, what they picked on its way. Um, so that's the, the initial kind of fit and functionality. I think we found that it's something that works, you know, in a blueberry field, but it also would work in a workshop or a warehouse or, you know, many other applications as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you said it has a, a weight or a payload of 450 pounds. Is that right? So we're, we're right around like 500 or okay. so pounds. I think that, that varies depending on terrain. It's, it's around like four or five horsepower. So, uh, you know, a typical, uh, you know, lawn tractor is something like maybe a 10 horsepower machine. So we're about half that. Um, so can, you know, do a, around 500 or so pounds. And we are four-wheel drive as well. So pretty mm. good in, in kind of dusty um, or, or muddy conditions. Okay. So I'm trying to put this in some sort of context. So if you can carry about 500 pounds, is, I mean, is that a good amount for a blueberry or an almond or a banana or whatever fruit farmer you're talking about? Is that a lot for them to carry? Yeah. yeah so it's, it's actually, um, in, in some cases it's almost, uh, so, so if you're picking blueberries, every person is typically picking 20 or 30 pounds per hour. So 500 pounds, uh, is something like 25 man hours. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. So it's a ton of capacity, believe it or not. Um, and uh, we can do so that we have a couple of different bed types for them. We can do up to a 48 by 48 inch bed at the moment, meaning that you can carry, you know, almost something the size of like a pallet you would otherwise move around with a forklift, although we've been skewing towards smaller, uh, you know, sizes than that. Um, but we found, I mean, if, if you have people running around carrying 500 pounds, you have a problem today. And that's about what we can do. So we're, you know, orders of magnitude above the amount of weight that a, that a, a person can comfortably carry. You know, even using something like a wheelbarrow or a cart. Yeah, and I've got to ask. So, the, what's the wear and tear like on something like this? I mean, are you having to keep track of hours? Is it like a normal tractor or car where you're constantly not oil changes, but some sort of maintenance on them? Yeah. So, um, I, I guess uh, so. We we've taken the design philosophy that is more akin to a Jeep than a Tesla, meaning that trying to maintain something that's very field serviceable. At the same time, we do not have an internal combustion engine in it. Uh, so we have electric motors, which are incredibly robust, uh, you know, thousands of hours of lifetime in them. Uh, we have a, about a $350 set of batteries in it. And those will wear out over three or four hours, three or four years of use. Um, however, uh, you know, they are so uh, low cost, relatively speaking, and they're swappable. Um, we found that not to be an issue. Um, so I think from a robustness perspective, um, you know, like on my family farm, we, you know, uh, uh, every 2000 hours or so we view akin to being like hundred thousand miles on a car. And with this type of thing, we think, you know, we'll, we'll be easily into the thousands of hours of runtime before we start seeing significant, 
uh, uh, wear items that need to be replaced. And those wear items would be things like replacing the batteries, which are swappable anyway, or maybe swapping out a motor, um, you know, at the most. We, we see it as a pretty ro- you know, rugged, robust system. Yeah, definitely understandable. And so you said you've really started seeing it being used here with fruit growers. But it looks like from your website, you can do a variety of things or expand the borough cart or platform to do other things besides that. Can you walk me through some of those other features and functions that you see it being used for? Yeah, so um, so just, I mean, uh, um, what we have is, is effectively a cart that follows a person, can learn routes the person has traveled, and at the same time, it's jammed full of cameras has a cell phone modem on it and also has GPS. So you can see where it is on the map and you can see what it is seeing. And then uh, kind of not to get too technical, but we have a very high powered GPU and a a, um, very high powered CPU on board, meaning that we can do all sorts of things with uh, uh, deep learning and so to speak, you know, deep learning and those types of techniques. So effectively um, over time, we intend to start creating really valuable data surrounding what the machine is, is, is um, seeing as it's traveling through operations. And then ultimately, if you know how to move around autonomously on a farm and you know what is going on everywhere, uh, then the logical conclusion to that is to start bolting on autonomy implements to ultimately do things like picking, pruning, weeding, spot spraying, um, you know, those types of tasks, which is where we want to evolve the machine towards. So how does the machine know that it's following a human and it's, and let's say you see a dog or it sees a dog, how does it know not to follow that animal instead of following the person that it's supposed to be following? Yeah. So, so we're using an approach called deep learning. Um, and, and, uh, I, am the non-technical guy on, on our team. So I always, <laughs> I always tell my technical team, like, uh, explain it to me like I'm a golden retriever. <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, uh, Deep learning effectively means that you're, you've, you've um, taken thousands and thousands and thousands of images of a particular type of object and then trained a, mathematic, mm. a mathematical model to infer that when it sees that particular type of object. And so we have a deep learning model for people, which is remarkably robust. Um, we have yet to see a single failure where it deviates from a person to a dog or anything like that. And so as long as you are a person standing in front of it and it has a certain confidence interval um, or, or a certain you know, confidence threshold, it will lock onto you and follow you. Um, and it knows that you're a person because it's able to robustly identify a person um, and, and able to robustly identify that you as a person are not a dog um, mm-hmm. and vice versa. So we, we, I guess we, we could hypothetically train it to follow dogs or giraffes or bicycles or anything else. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's set up to only follow people. Wow, that's really neat. I'm sure I probably wouldn't understand all of the technical side of it anyways, either. When you look at, um, I guess, runtime, maybe that's not the best term for it, but let's say I'm in the field, I've had an eight-hour day, does this burrow have to go back and recharge, or is it good for an extended period of time? Yeah, so um, so we have two. There are two um, sealed lead acid batteries on board. Um, they weigh about 50 pounds apiece. Uh, you can swap them out in the field. So if you were to run it out in the field, you could replace them in the field pretty easily. Um, and then secondly, the machine is set up so you can just plug it into a wall outlet, so just like a standard 120 volt socket, like you'd have at home. And then it will charge the batteries on board in four or five hours or so. Um, so 
the growers we've been working with thus far, they typically will have a, you know, someplace on the ranch or on the farm where they can take it at the end of the day and plug it in overnight. Um, and then if, God forbid, it is, does run out of batteries over the course of the day, you can recharge it quickly or swap those batteries out. Um, and then lastly, we are talking about something like 20 or 30 miles of range, depending on what you're doing with it. So if you're walking that distance, you, you're, you know, you're, you're running a marathon or something. Hmm. Um, and if you have it running that distance autonomously, which is possible, um, it's rare that you, you know, have it run 20 miles in a specific day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been pretty good on range thus far. Wow, that's really interesting. So let's say I'm a farmer. I would like to implement this or buy this for my operation. Am I paying you a subscription-based fee? Do I just pay you a one-time flat fee and then I own it? Yeah, so um, at the moment, we are primarily working with really large growers. So, you know, we're we're an early-stage tech company. Um, So working with large growers and selling it either outright or as a service. But in either case, we are on-site with the product, getting it set up and making sure it works seamlessly. And as we start getting into uh, this coming year, so into 2019, we are going to start talking about selling them directly to, you know, farmers and, and, and people with other you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, operations where they, where they need a logistics or collaborative robot like our, our machine. Um, and at that point, we will either be talking about selling it as a service per day, maybe as a leasing model, and then if you want to buy it outright, you, of course, can, um, the only thing is if you buy it outright, we do have a $500 per year subscription fee, and that covers – that it basically allows the machine to be online constantly and allows us to provide software updates to it. Um, uh, so that's the one, I guess, recurring fee that we have in, in the world where you buy the machine outright. Okay. That definitely makes sense. And, Charlie, I guess before we kind of wrap everything up here, we've got to talk about it. You recently won an automation startup, which uh, can you just walk me through what that was like to do a fast pitch competition and what that's going to mean for your business? Yeah, so um, believe it or not, we actually pitched there last year and lost. (laughs) So um, this is our our second time at it. Um, It was uh, um, a a startup pitch run by Western Growers and um, uh, uh, Seed to Growth, which is, uh, I guess, a top tier ag tech VC based in Chicago. And, um, we, uh, you know, I guess in, in short, it was definitely a whirlwind. Um, you know, we had five minutes to present what we're doing and then five minutes to, to answer questions in front of a group of, um, you know, a group of growers who are, who are members of Western mm-hmm. growers. Um, and we, I think we ranked very high within the crowd. So a, a strong portion said that a strong portion of the crowd said they would either want to buy or to try our device, which I know helped out quite a bit in the judging panel, um, and out of it, uh, we get about a quarter of a million dollars from from them, um, and we're we're in the midst of raising some more funding beyond that as well. And with that, we are you know hoping to really start ramping up production and and sales and marketing efforts to really get a lot of these machines out there into the market. Um, yeah. So we're we're really excited about the next chapter. That's really exciting. We're excited for you, Charlie. Final question for you: If folks are listening and want to learn more, where should they head for more information? Yeah, so they can definitely go to our website. It is www.a is an apple, g is in girl, r is in robot, b is in boy, t is in tom.com. So www.agrbt.com. Um, and you can uh, check us out there. Um, or if they want to look at uh, hashtag goodborough, they'll see tons of pictures of our, our robot running around in different applications as well. Well, that's awesome. All right. Yeah. So Charlie, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, look uh, look forward to to hearing this. And thank you so much. All right. 
Fantastic. Thank you, Delaney. Listeners, remember, we do a Tech Tuesday every week. If you want to get caught up on what's happening in the world of agricultural technology, feel free to skim back through all of our past episodes. And we've got a little bit of a change. If you're used to going to agnewsdaily.com to get your daily dose of this podcast, we're you can still go to that website. That's still going to be good, but you're going to notice a change. It's going to divert you to our new page at the Global Ag Network. We are very excited to be kicking that off. Be sure to stay tuned. We will have a lot of announcements here, particularly this week and the start of next week about that. But from now on, you can go to globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily, and that will take you to our podcast. And you can always search for hashtag Tech Tuesday for those older episodes. And with that, listeners, Delaney will be back tomorrow. We'll be reporting from the NAFB Conference, National Association of Farm Broadcasters Conference in Kansas City. So until then, I'm going to let you go.